I want to, as I begin this night, this evening, to just uh, make my somewhat lame claim to, to fame, um, talking to esteemed medical personnel like yourselves. I was a wannabe doctor at one time in my life. I was probably as close as I got to being what you are today. I did go to uh, university and I studied zoology, but I was not medical material, and so I was heading into aquaculture, fish breeding, and I think that's the closest I got to ever becoming a doctor or a medical personnel. So if that holds any credibility with you, then uh, welcome me because I was a wannabe doctor at one point. <laughs> well, tonight I'm talking about the four qualities of effective partnership. I think it uh, is right for me to just mention to you that I'm a, I am a pastor, as uh, Dr. Bruce mentioned just a moment ago, have been for the last 22 years, and it has been my honor as I have grown from a 26-year-old pastor to today to have learned much from the Lord as I have tried to navigate this area of partnerships as they concern church to church in international missions. I know that uh, those of you gathered here largely are in the medical field, and it's a different world than the world that I have known. But I have come to believe that the lessons I have learned apply not just to the church, but that they become a model for partnerships in many other realms, whether we're talking about business or we're talking about um, you know, the medical realm and the exchange of personnel and working across borders and uh, working in other cultures, or whether we're talking about even um, governmental partnerships with other states, that these four qualities need to become the overarching values that govern our understanding of partnerships. The word partnership is not a new word. We all talk about partnerships and have all experienced in one form or another some form of partnership, whether it is a necessary partnership between, for example, the nursing staff and the administration and the medical doctors, or it is across departments in the same organization or even between partner medical institutions across nations and countries. But while the idea of partnership is a simple enough one, it is often a difficult one to enact because culture, institutional history, power dynamics, and personal temperamental challenges rise up to complicate the relationship. And soon there is resident hurt and there is mistrust. And the problem is not just found in medical partnerships. It's across the globe, in any form of partnership that you can imagine. It's the same issues that rear up their ugly head and make it so difficult for us to work together. Why is this? As I've said, my area of competence is in the realm of cross-cultural church and missional partnerships. But I want to share from this perspective while trying to relate what I have learned on partnerships to the area of medical practice. The reasons are many why our partnerships struggle. But let me briefly explore four reasons why partnerships, especially cross-cultural partnerships, are so complicated. And the first reason is the challenge of culture. You see, for those of us who come from the majority world, that's Africa, Latin America, um, India and parts of Asia, the bulk of Asia. What was traditionally called the two-thirds world, what was traditionally called the underdeveloped world, what has been called in the past the third world, those are all now culturally or rather politically incorrect terms because they, they seem to be judgments in terms of a people's abilities and uh, their learning. So we call it the majority world because the majority of the world lives in the southern hemisphere in what used to be called the developing nations. The challenge of culture. Those of us who come from the majority world largely come from traditional cultures that are shame-oriented cultures, as opposed to those who come from what is called the western hemisphere. That's Australia, Europe, and the North American continent, 
who come from what is traditionally called a guilt-based culture. A shame-based culture is a culture where the worst social um, error you could make is to shame somebody else and to put them down. This shame-based cultural trait in the majority world is such that it is absolutely important to honor those that you are in relationship with. And for this reason then, you probably know this if you've lived in the majority world, for this reason then, on a simple level, when you ask for directions here in Kenya, the person you ask for directions will always give you some form of direction even if they don't know where you're going. And the reason is because the worst thing they could do is to shame you who has reached out and asked for assistance by telling you that they cannot give you assistance. And so they give you their best with good intentions so as to sh save you from shame. That's at a little level. It becomes more complicated when you talk about evangelism in the majority world. Because when I go and meet somebody I don't know and I take time to share the gospel with them and to open up the Bible and to take them through a little track and at the end of the track I ask this person, would you like to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? In the majority world, in a shame-based culture, what do you think their answer will be? It will be yes. Because if they say no after you have reached out to them and given them what you have, then they would have shamed you. And so the problem of evangelism on this continent is that Africa has been saved three times over. If you counted up all the number of times there have been commitments to Christ, it triples the number of people there are on the continent of Africa. And this is true of most majority world cultures. We do not know how to say no because we're a shame-based culture. Now, guilt-based culture um, understands guilt but not shame. There is no shame. There are parts of this world, particularly in, in what is called the Western Hemisphere, where you can go and the way people dress is shameful by our standards. But they do not understand it as that because they are expressing their personal rights to dress in a manner that doesn't, you know, go against the law. But for you and I, it shows too much. It is deeply embarrassing. But there is not that, change, that sense of communal shame. There is only a sense of individual guilt. Much of the gospel today is preached from the context or the perspective of guilt and not shame. And so when we come to partnerships and you're working from two different perspectives like this, it becomes very difficult to be able to understand one another. And some people will say that, you know, Africans never really tell you what you need to hear. They tell you what they think you want to hear. And so you can't trust them. You know, they say one thing, but they go and do another thing. It's because they're operating from a shame-based context, not a guilt-based. You know the passage in the Bible that says, speak the truth in love. Well, when you think about that, the difference between guilt-based and shame-based is this. The West is very good about speaking the truth. They call it calling a spade a spade, telling you what is on my mind calling it as it is. And so they speak the truth. We in Africa speak in love. And sometimes that means we need to compromise on exactly how we define truth. The challenge of culture is that we tend to be an event-based people as opposed to a time-oriented people. You know, one of the struggles that almost all of us pastors have is that people never come to church on time, okay? They never come for meetings on time. But I don't have a problem with that when we are not in a timed event. Say we're having an event on Saturday, you're supposed to come at 2 o'clock. Everybody comes at 3 o'clock. That's okay because we're supposed to end at 4 o'clock from 2 to 4. But because they came at 3 o'clock, we'll end at 5 o'clock. So I get my two hours, they came when they needed to come, and we're all happy. Well, that doesn't work when you go to a time-based culture. Because 2 o'clock is 2 o'clock. And to come at 5 minutes past 2 is a matter of great contention, so to say. We don't seem to keep time, but we still get what needs to be done, done. But we never keep time. An event-based culture as opposed to a time-oriented. We come from a relational culture as opposed to a transactional culture. 
A relational culture means this. If you want to understand the way this country works, it's all about relationships. The currency of our culture is relationships. And so when I need to go and get a passport, well, at least it's been this way, we're praying that change will come about, what with the new constitution and the changes we're seeing. When I need to go and get a passport, what is the first question that Kenyans ask? Who do I know in the immigration department? Because nothing works until the relationships kick in. And so it's all a matter of, you know, my colleague's sister's niece works in this department and she has a friend in the immigration. So when I go to get my passport, I go to that department, meet this colleague's sister's niece, and they escort me to their relative in the immigration department. They introduce me as a good friend, as somebody we grew up together with, as somebody who knows their mother, as somebody who is really admired by their father, and can you please help them? And then the passport is produced within 24 hours. If I went and lined up, it would take at least three weeks. That's a relational-based culture. And it is the relationships you have that determine what gets done. It is not the fact that something is supposed to be done and an officer is in place and they need to do their business. That's different from a transactional culture, which is what I would uh, understand most Western society cultures to be. And so the challenge of navigating culture complicates our partnerships. Secondly, the challenge of power and leadership. Perceived power differentials between the two partners. And when there is a big power differential, it becomes very difficult for this partnership to operate except in a client, um, what is it, a, a, a client-patron relationship. And once a partnership becomes a client-patron relationship, then it complicates the, the relationship tremendously. Now, you are medical doctors by and large, and so it may well be that you are equals, and you're able to discuss your matters together as equals. And in this sense then, apart from the culture, your relationships don't have the perceived power differential. Except where those who come from what is called the developed countries do not respect the degrees of those who come from the underdeveloped countries. And then the power differential kicks in. And there is lack of respect. And it becomes a complicated relationship. It may also be that they are complicated because of our differing definitions of leaders. I have learned over the years that one of the qualities that is admired in the Western Hemisphere about a leader is that they are assertive, they know what they want to do, they know what they need to do by when, and they are quick to defend their ideas and to stand by their vision. The problem is, that sort of person in our context is considered to be rude and assertive and not the person who has leadership qualities. The person who has leadership qualities is a quiet, you know, um, negotiator who speaks with a soft voice, who never asserts their, 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 their ideas, who never pushes their power, but quietly influences from behind. But that sort of person is understood to be a weak leader when you're in the Western Hemisphere. And so when we cross borders, and the West comes to Africa, they choose the assertive, you know, the, the strong-willed, the, the vocal leaders that no one is following because they prefer and understand the negotiator to be the real leader. There are differing, differing definitions of leadership. The third challenge is the challenge of money and dependency. The whole question of trust. Can we trust across cultures? And do we know that when there is an exchange of financial resources, that the resources will go where they're supposed to go? There is such a long history of that not happening that there is suspicion and mistrust in the relationship. And those who handle the monies in the, in the Southern Hemisphere feel that they are loaded over, that they are never given the freedom to make decisions in their context, to decide what needs to be done first, but that they have become hirelings and underlings who must obey the voice that comes from the West. But the West also feels, you know, we have enough history where there has been misappropriation of resources and therefore we cannot trust. 
And so it complicates a partnership. And then fourthly, there's a challenge of worldview. You know, the whole question of the origin of disease as to whether it is pathogenic or non-pathogenic, the whole question of how hospitals operate, what are the infectious agents? Many of you are trained in Western medicine, and so you, may be all, you might all be in agreement with this matter and would say, as you were trained, that diseases are largely pathogenic. It comes from infectious agents, from bacteria, viruses, prions, poison, or fungi. But there's a problem with that, because when you come from the two-thirds world, with a two-thirds worldview, we know that diseases are also demonic. And we know that diseases come out of broken relationships. And that not all diseases are because of infectious agents and pathogens. And there are diseases that are demonic. And when a patient comes to you, what they need is an exorcism. It's not medication. And we also know about alternative medicines that have brought healing in our villages. But you see, when there is a dominance of ideas that disease is only pathogenic and you are scientists and the facts speak and there can only be one form or one origin of diseases, anything else is quackery and is not trustable. It does not have a place in your medical discussions. I wonder whether so far in your conference you have actually talked about the demonic and how to exorcise evil spirits of a patient. Cross-cultural medical partnerships are then built on the foundation of these four complexities and their undergirding power to shape outcomes. When we deal with partnerships without first addressing these underlying fundamental convictions, then our relationships become strained and testy. But doctors don't have time for that. After all, the supposed foundation of their whole discipline is based on objective, observable, non-cultural facts. A disease is a disease is a disease, and culture or context has nothing to do with it. Maybe so until you realize that most diseases are actually driven by the context of poverty and injustice and cultural beliefs. And that until you deal with those dynamics, you will never be able to overcome the so-called pathogenic disease or driven by psychosomatic beliefs that have no pathogenic cause or are driven by demonic forces that our medical training did not account for. Let me, let me give this substance. Luke chapter 9, verse 37 through 43. I'll read it for you, okay? The next day, Jesus and the disciples, when they came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, a large crowd met them. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him. And he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. And Jesus replied and said, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. Convulsion, But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. If this boy was brought to your practice today, many doctors would probably diagnose him to have had a neurological problem or maybe even been suffering from some form of poisoning or even possibly epilepsy. We would have medicated the boy, and he would have continued to degenerate. Would have committed him finally to a mental institution, because the medicines we have do not work. But what the boy really needed was to have a demonic spirit cast out of him. 
And the symptoms of his illness, so to say, were not pathogenic. They were not psychosomatic. It was a demonic spirit. Some diseases are spiritual and demonic. And they display themselves in the form of paralysis or seeming mental disorder or epilepsy as we see in Jesus' ministry. And maybe one of the classes that all medical doctors should have is that we take you to Madare and you conduct a few exorcism sessions because there are probably a lot of patients there who are being medicated who just need an evil spirit cast out. As in missions, much of our understanding of me medicine and hence of partnerships are dominated by the one perspective that is a Western understanding of medicine and their interpretation of what causes illness. And you know the way that things have worked in the past, and this is true even in the, in the missions realm, is that if it works in the rest, export it to the rest. If it's good for the West, it's good for the rest. But those are not partnerships. Such presumptions and even the dominance of ideas only complicates the possibility of partnerships. We need a new paradigm of what partnerships are supposed to be. And I want to suggest one such paradigm for your consideration that arises from an analogy that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 of the global church and hence of global missions, including even Christian medical missions, maybe as represented here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, and he says, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And if I may put a twist to this, to apply it to our context here. If the American medical missions should say, because we are not Africans, we do not belong to the body, they would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the European medical missions should say, because we are not Asian, we do not belong to the body, they would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were African, where would the sense of professionalism be? Sorry, my brothers and sisters. But if the whole body were European, where would the sense of joy and celebration be? In fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The African medical industry cannot say to the Europeans, we don't need you. And the American medical industry cannot say to the Latin Americans, we don't need you. On the contrary, the Caribbean parts that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the African parts that we think are less honorable should be treated with special honor. And the Latino parts that seem unpresented are to be treated with special modesty. While the presentable parts, like the big, well-developed Christian medical industry coming from the Western Hemisphere needs no special treatment. God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, the whole body suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. If we are to build healthy partnerships, I think what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 gives us four values that make for those healthy partnerships. The first is this. Whenever it is an enterprise of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I would suggest that this transcends even just Christian practice to include any form of partnership, if it is going to work, ultimately the purpose of the partnership must be interdependence and not independence. We do not operate within the partnership as though we are independent agents, but we operate as interdependent agents. When the African or Asian practice is fully developed, 
as the Asian practice is rapidly developing even now with some of the amazing things that they're doing both in Singapore and in India, it must seek to be interdependent on the rest of the body of Christ, not independent, for the body is made up of many different organs. And if anyone understands this, more than anyone, it would be you, for you know how the body operates and how the organs are interdependent on one another. If any organ in the body, say the liver, was to say, I have lived in this body now for 30 years. I'm all grown up. I've stopped developing anymore. I've finished my growth curve. I am mature. I do not need the rest of the body. I want to cut loose and do my own thing. All that would make is a sick body. You see, even when the liver is at its most developed self, it will always be interdependent on the rest of the body. It never becomes independent. And the sign of maturity in the body is not an independent practice. It is that we are interdependent on others in this particular industry and practice. The Asian industry desperately needs to be interdependent on the European industry. But the Europeans desperately need the Asians also because they too are interdependent in the one body that is the body of Christ. The Africans know that they desperately need the American brothers and sisters even in this medical missions field. But do the Americans know that they desperately need the Africans also because we are the body of Christ? If I may apply this to my world of church missions, which is of course a matter of interest to almost everyone here. In the realm of missions, we are the body of Christ. And when the African church becomes mature and solid and it's growing rapidly right now, it is considered to be the fastest growing church in the world today. And when it becomes mature and solid, it must never say to the rest of the world, we don't need you anymore. We're now mature and we can be independent. Because if we did that, that is not the character of the body of Christ. If we are an organ in the body, we will always need every other organ, even when we have become mature. And so the first value that drives healthy partnerships is a recognition that we must be interdependent on one another. I need you. And you may not know it, but you need me also. Because together, we are the body of Christ. The second value that Paul would teach us from this passage about partnerships is the value of reciprocity. You see, you know this, every organ in the body gives to every other organ in the body. But every organ in the body also takes from every other organ in the body. The heart gives blood to every other organ in the body, but it receives from every other organ in the body also. The lungs give oxygen to every other organ in the body, but they also receive from other parts of the body. The stomach digests and gives raw energy or food to the other parts of the body, but it depends on the heart to send it oxygenated blood. And every organ in the body has something to give, and every organ in the body receives from the other organs. That's reciprocity. Illness in the body comes when the organs of the body determine that I don't need anything from anyone else, but I will give what I have. If the traffic of missions, if the traffic of partnership is only in one direction, then it leads to illness. Illness comes when the body rejects a member, an organ of the body, and collectively says, we don't need our liver anymore and we don't want what it has to contribute. That's illness. And the body suffers for it. 
What reciprocity demands of us is this, that we recognize what we have to give to the body of Christ globally, but that we also recognize what the body of Christ globally gives to us, that is health. You see, when we talk about resources in Christian mission, then we must recognize that there is more than one resource. Money is not the only resource. Technology is not the only resource. Every organ in the body has a resource to give the rest of the body, but it also receives the multiple resources from the rest of the body. And so, as Africans, even in the medical practice, I presume, I suppose, that there is a lot of technology that is given to us, developed in the Western Hemisphere. There is some of the most advanced, you know, thinking in terms of, you know, curative processes and medical care that comes from the rest of the world, whether it's Asia or maybe Latin America or maybe, again, the Western Hemisphere. And it is sometimes possible for us to take the posture as Africans that we need them to give us what they have. But ye, we have nothing to give us. As we just receive and we're so thankful and we're trying to learn as fast as we can and we so appreciate this technology which could never be developed in Africa and the money you give us, ye, thank you so much. But we have nothing to give back in return. This is not the body of Christ. Even the African church, even the African medical enterprise, the Christian medical enterprise, being a part of the body of Christ has something to give back in return. And maybe all we can give is prayer. But in Christian enterprise, what is more valuable than prayer? Money and technology are not the only resources in the body. For the lungs, oxygen is a resource. For the heart, transportation is a resource. For the liver, what it gives is a resource. It's hormones and whatever else. For the gallbladder, what it gives, bile, is a resource. For the kidneys, taking the toxins out is a resource. For the brain, the electrical impulses that control the rest of the body is a resource. For the eyes, sight is a resource. For the ears, hearing is a resource. For the nose, smelling is a resource. Everybody has a resource to give. Dependency, which is an unhealthy state and has plagued our partnerships, is when one member of the body believes it has nothing else to give, and all it does is receive and receive and receive. And this is our challenge as Africans. But this is not the character of the body of Christ. Dependency is also developed when the rest of the body does not receive, but it gives and gives and gives. One-way missions is the very cause of dependency. And the acceptance of that posture that we from the majority world have nothing to give but we receive is the cause of dependency. And if we're going to heal dependency in the body, in the industry, in missions itself, then those who have not given need to recognize God has given us something to give to the rest of the body because we are an organ in the body as God ordained. And we must rise up to the challenge of giving out of that which God has given us. But the rest of the body needs to receive what we give. It may not be technology, it may not be money, but we can, we can receive the prayers that come from Africa. The faith that is so vibrant. The joy even in the face of challenges and disease and death and, and all, sort, all manner of disorder on the continent. The sense of gratitude to God in the face of challenges. It is amazing that a recent um, study on, and I don't know how they measure this, but on happiness around the world indicated that Americans are the most unhappy people in the world. 
You know, we think that they have everything. My goodness, you know, you should see their houses. You should see all the collectibles they have in the houses. How pretty their houses are. The big cars that they drive. How can you be unhappy when you have so much? But they were rated to be the most unhappy people, the most dissatisfied people, even in spite of what they have. And so the second value for our partnerships, if they are going to be working partnerships, good partnerships, is a commitment to the value of reciprocity, that we give generously, but we also receive with grace. And we never say, to even those we think have so little to give us. Oh, you know, you're so poor. How can I take anything from you? Because that's what creates dependency. And when it's drummed in long enough, then they begin to believe that. And they begin to believe we have nothing. We're so poor. This is the second. The third value I suggest to you is respect. Respect as a value for partnerships. You know, you are doctors or medical practitioners in one form or another. I was a biology student and I loved biology when I did it. And you know, I studied this in um, university. And uh, very few of us live with any awareness of the pituitary gland. Now you all know what the pituitary gland is. And you know where it's located, just under the brain. Small bean size, maybe a pea size, green pea sized little organ that hangs just under the brain, okay? Very few of us live with an awareness of the pituitary gland. But did you know, and I would expect that you do, that the pituitary gland exerts a huge influence on the body's well-being by secreting the hormones the 10 or 12 essential hormones into the body that the body cannot do without. It's often called the master endocrine gland in the body. What Paul says in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 12, the parts that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable should be treated with special honor. We don't even know we have a pituitary gland. Because the organs we see, the organs that are admired, the organs that draw attention are the eyes, the lips, the hair, um, you know, the ears, the beautiful legs, the long, you know, fingers with their nails and their arms. These are the organs we see. And so they're the most admired. We even define people by these organs. What lovely hair you have. Oh, your eyes, when I stare into them, they're so deep, I just get lost in them. Some of you ladies here know those words because they were said to you at the right time, okay, as you fell in love. I can bet you, even as medical doctors, no man ever said to any lady here, my goodness, your pituitary gland, it is so beautiful. Nobody recognizes or honors the pituitary gland. But here's a reality. You can live, you can survive without your eyes. You can survive without your ears. You can survive without your limbs, your hands, or your legs. But you can hardly survive without your pituitary gland. And Paul says, the parts that seem insignificant, unadmirable, unpresentable, these are the parts that should be treated with honor. You see, in God's economy, it's not about size, it's not about sophistication, it's not about, you know, the amount of money, it's not about the amount of technology. God's economy is almost upside down. And what we think is not worthy of honor is the very thing that God honors. And it is those weak practices fledgling practices that are struggling to stay alive, that are struggling to become professional, that draw the attention of God. And he says, those practices that are big, 
and beautiful and well-resourced and technologically advanced, they receive no special honor. And so, as we cross boundaries and borders and go into other parts of the world, one of the things we must learn to do, one of the things we must learn to do is to honor even those parts that seem primitive, not technologically resourced, using methods and processes that are long outdated. We must honor these parts. When you go into the Congo with the challenges they have and you go into their medical hospitals and you are abhorred by just how under-resourced they are, there are no drugs on the shelves. They don't have the technology. Simple procedures become life-threatening. Go with humility and honor them for what they seek to do with such big challenges ahead of them. Because when God looks on them, his heart is warmed by the compassion and the commitment to stand even in the face of challenge when they have so much working against them. And for us who travel to the West, I was just recently in Indianapolis, and I was told some of the world's leading technologically advanced hospitals, private hospitals, five of them, I was told, are just on the outskirts of Indianapolis. They were pointed out to me. And I was told if you go into there, you will be amazed by what they are doing inside there. And the technology that is not, has not even broken out into the medical profession. It is cutting-edge technology that they have in there. And we go and pander for these things and long for them and dream of the day that we will become like them and we will no longer need them and it will be made in Kenya, it will be made in Uganda, it will be made in Mozambique and we will be the pride of the nations. Never forget to honor those parts that seem to be weak and fledgling. And then the fourth value that should drive our partnerships is the value of humility. You know, one of the things I like to do when I travel, and this particularly to, you know, of all countries I've traveled in the Western Hemisphere, I love going to America. And when I go to America, the first place I want to go and worship, you know they talk about America as a nation of consumerism. And so if you want to go to the temples of America, there are several, I'll tell you what the temples are. One of the temples of America is called Walmart. Have you ever been to Walmart? It is the temple of consumerism. And I pay my dues and respects at this temple when I go to America. I love going to Walmart. And when I do go, I ask my host, you know, can you drop me here at 10 o'clock in the morning and come and pick me up at 6 o'clock in the evening? In other words, don't stress me. I need to be here for a long time. Now, I don't have the money to go and do, you know, major shopping in a place like Walmart, but I love going to Walmart for this reason. As I walk up and down the aisles, I am amazed by what is on the shelves. You know, you have two rows of cereals, all manner and colors of cereals, and it's interesting to walk up and down and see, okay, this box here, you know, um, corn flakes and what else? You know, it has 220 calories per spoon. And this one here has 340. I, I actually am quite fascinated by all this. But there are particular shelves that I like to go and view, okay? Because I walk up and down some shelves in the electric department, maybe in the electronics department, maybe even in the automobile department, sometimes even in the pharmaceutical department, and I just want to see the products on the shelves because I pick up something and I ask myself, I wonder what this is for. So I read the small print and I say, ah, somebody has thought up this thing and have solved a problem I didn't even know exists. Let me give you a couple of examples, okay? I want to educate my brothers and sisters from Africa who have never been to America. One day you will travel. So remember this pastor who told you how to survive in America, okay? One of the things you must do when you go to America is be very careful when you go into the bathroom and you want to have a hot shower. 
Because American faucets are not like what we know here in Kenya. Some of them you pull, some of them you push. Some of them you twist, some of them you turn round. You know, um, some of them you both pull and twist. And to get the hot water, you need to stand outside of the shower and first en engineer how water comes out of the faucet. If you make the mistake of stepping in like a mirror, you know, just stepping into the shower and turning the faucet, you may scale yourself. And so you always step outside and you first figure out the faucet. And I will not kid you. There are some where I have had to go to my host and say, I can't get water to come out of this thing. Can you come and show me? Because there are all these amazing faucets. Now, the thing I like about Americans is they never see a problem and not want to solve it. They have the gift of, you know, problem solving. Americans, they're amazing. You know, it's not like us. When we were in school, we were taught the old British way. You keep quiet and you sit still and you do not speak until you are addressed. And so rubble we were. We sat in class and, you know, African kids never fudge, they never, you know, sh sh shovel or fidget. They always sit prim and proper for six hours. You can teach them, and they are quiet, they are submissive, they, you know, completely. American education does not work like this. Let me educate you, my brothers and sisters from Africa. American education does not work like this. In American education, you get marked upwards, you're given points when you can suggest an answer or a solution. And so in the classroom, the students who do well are the ones who speak out and who try and solve the problem. And their class participation is a good thing. If that kid is in, a, in an African school, they will be seen to be attention deficit disorder because they are always talking. But there, that is a sign of a good student. And the way that their educational system works is you're given a problem and you are challenged to solve the problem. It's not like the system we were taught, which came from our colonizers, where you cram and cram and cram and cram, and then you go and regurgitate at the exam, and then three hours after the exam, you can't remember anything. <laughs> and so you're, you're, you're graded up for solving the problem. By the time they graduate, Americans can solve problems. And so, let me tell you about the water faucet, okay? Here in Kenya, you have a hot water tap and a cold water tap, okay? And so when you want to wash your hands, some of you mirrors put your hand under the cold water, get some cold water, and then you put under the hot water, and it becomes warm, and then you do like this, okay? Oh, alternatively, you find the stopper, which for many of us, the stopper disappeared long ago. But you find the stopper, you stop the sink, and you turn on the hot water and let it fill half the sink, shut that, and then turn off in the cold water until the temperature is right, shut that, and then you wash your hands in this water in the basin. And you know, because you're doctors, that you wash, you know, your dirty hands into dirty water, and you rinse with dirty water, and you're only 70% clean by the time you finish. Americans are clever. Then they figured, why do we need two taps here? Why can we not combine these taps into one faucet and it brings out the water at the right temperature, running water, and by the time we have finished washing our hands under running water, we are 100% clean. And so they have all these fancy faucets that do exactly that. They saw a problem and they solved it. Miros, we're still living with our problems waiting for somebody to solve them for us. I love this about Americans. So I go into Walmart, and I go into, you know, the, the, the automobile section, and I just look at the different things on this. And I have bought some of these things. But if you ride in my car, you'll be amazed. I have a thing up here that holds sunglasses. I have these two reflectors that show the blind spot. All these I picked up in Walmart. It's an amazing place, I tell you. The rest of us are living with our blind spot on our rear view mirror. There's like a gadget. You know how they say there's an app for that? There's a gadget for that. Just go to Walmart when you go. You will be thankful to remember me. But the same is true with drugs. 
They solve the problem of drugs. I saw an advert of a person who has, what, what do you call this, um, you know, um, acid in the stomach. And, uh, you know, um, when acid comes out of the stomach through the valve and into your esophagus and you get heartburn. Now, I used to really struggle with heartburn. And there were some foods that I avoided, whether it's bread or it's pizza or it's cheese and such. Till I went to America. And I saw that they were advertising a capil that you take. It's called Pepsi. You take it, and then they show the guy there in the advert with 10 pizzas eating his heart's delight because he solved the problem of heartburn. I said, Atamimi, I'm going to this thing to get Pepsi. They don't live with the problem. The challenge, however, is that when they travel overseas, because they have solved problems in this way and it's a value, when they travel overseas, they want to fix everyone. And when they see poverty, they want to fix poverty. When they see disease, they want to fix disease. When they see, you know, practices that are not professional, they want to fix such practices. But the reality is, in the human enterprise, you can't fix Africa. You can't fix Asia. And it is terribly offensive when somebody comes and they want to fix you. And so the fourth value I would suggest to us is humility. In fact, I would say, from all that Paul says about the parts of the body and each one playing its role, no part of the body takes over the role of another part and tries to fix it. And when we travel, we always need to take up a posture of humility and a willingness to learn from other centers. Believe it or not, there is much that you can learn, even in medical practice, from Africa. Now that is true for us as we travel to other centers of the world. And so I suggest to you, as Paul would say, the body is made up of many parts and all the parts need one another and should have equal concern for each other and should teach each other because together we are the body of Christ. When one part hurts, the whole body of Christ hurts. When one part rejoices, then the rejoicing is for the whole part. As you seek to develop your partnerships within your industry, in the name of Christ, may it be that you would display these four values that Paul talks about. That you would be committed to interdependence and not independence. That you would be committed to a spirit of reciprocity, to give and to receive. That you'd be committed to respecting even those fledgling, seemingly primitive weak parts of the body and that you would be committed to embracing a spirit of humility as you submit yourself to learn from other centers of the body for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you and thank you.